You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton joins the Post to discuss his new White House memoir, The Room Where It Happened, and his 453 days working with President Trump. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter at the Washington Post. Today I'm joined by Ambassador John Bolton, President Trump's former national security advisor, and he is the author of The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Ambassador Bolton, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the opening of your book. It has a detailed recounting of how you joined the Trump administration. Why did you join the administration in the first place, given what you wrote in the book about the president's behavior was largely known beforehand? Well, I uh, have had the honor of serving in prior Republican administrations uh, at the State Department and the Justice Department. And uh, I felt that it was a time of great challenge for the United States. I thought that the prior eight years of the Obama administration had seen a lot of misguided policies that uh, had weakened our national security posture, and uh, and I hoped I could make a contribution. Um, I was obviously aware of many of the things that had been said and written about uh, Donald Trump, uh, but I also had had uh, a number of meetings with him where we had discussed my views and his views on uh, foreign and defense policy uh, before the election, after he took office. Uh, he certainly had watched me on Fox News, so nobody's ever accused me of being shy about stating my views. So I thought he had a pretty good idea where I stood. And I hope that uh, uh, what was in the in the press and, and uh, the gossip columns about him would turn out to be overstated and wrong, and that we would find a way to make this work in a sustained and coherent fashion and that and that I could make a contribution. And that's what my motivation was. And uh, I recount in the book what actually happened and whether or not that turned out to be true. Speaking of what actually happened, when was the first moment you came to the conclusion that President Trump was unfit? Well, it didn't pop out like a light bulb turning on. It was a accumulation of uh, many, many meetings, conversations, uh, things that played out uh, over a sustained period of time. Uh, but there were uh, some successes in, in the early days, roughly a month after uh, I joined the administration. Uh, Trump was able to announce uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal, which I thought was a badly misguided initiative. It was something he had tried to do uh, from the beginning uh, of his term, but had not been able to do. And I, I felt that this was something he clearly had signaled during the campaign he wanted to do. It was consistent with my longstanding view of uh, the 2015 deal being uh, contrary to American interest. So uh, despite the increasingly troubling signs, I would say, there were also some positive things. I've, I've tried to be uh, as accurate as I can in describing both sides of that equation. So it was more uh, an issue of, of the evidence mounting over time than one uh, immediate moment. What do you remember any moment that you said to yourself, this man is unfit to serve as commander in chief early on? 
Well, I think the most uh, disturbing um, uh, moment in the early days was at the uh, NATO summit in Brussels. I described this uh, at some length in the book. Uh, he really was very close to withdrawing from NATO. I didn't think this was show or hoopla. I, th I thought he really was uh, on the verge of doing that. I thought uh, for all that NATO needs substantial reform, for all that Trump is correct, that our NATO allies have not over the years borne their fair share of the costs, uh, uh, the answer is not to withdraw. Uh, the oceans do not protect America like they did two or three centuries ago. And NATO, in my judgment, is the most successful political military alliance in history. So with uh, Mike Pompeo and Jim Mattis, who were also there in Brussels, John Kelly, the White House chief of staff, uh, we all worked in various ways. And I recount these stories in the book uh, to to help persuade the president not actually to withdraw. And, and turned out he didn't withdrawal. That whole incident, which played out over perhaps a 48-hour period, uh, was very unnerving to me. And I think, as I indicate, uh, probably the first point uh, after I joined the White House that I thought I was going to have to resign. And it was the, but, but I, I do think there's a responsibility on people when you go into a position like that. Uh, the president makes the decisions. Nobody's ever under any illusions to the contrary that you keep trying to provide advice. And uh, uh, in that case, I actually thought maybe maybe this is some confirmation that I can make a contribution. And it, uh, despite the narrow miss uh, that actually helped encourage me to stay on longer. You write throughout the book, as you just said, about your alarm about the president's policy positions and policy statements, both publicly and privately. But did you ever speak up and confront the president about the conduct and the behavior that you write about tested legal bounds? Well, we certainly spoke about it. Uh, the president is uh, uh, very good at rejecting criticism he doesn't want to hear. Uh, in some of the areas that I thought were legally questionable, uh, I did uh, brief the counsel to the president and the attorney general. That's really uh, their responsibility, and I, I filled them in on what I knew and counted on them to do what they thought was required. But, you know, the service in the White House itself is not like uh, the West Wing. Uh, there aren't dramatic confrontations with the president, at least any that don't result in about 24 hours later the confrontor departing from the White House. Uh, there were things we tried to do uh, in Ukraine, for example to ensure that the security assistance that was held up was delivered. Uh, but it's not a, uh, it's it's not the kind of environment, uh, as, as in almost any business office, where you look to confront your boss with something. Uh, and, and those are the circumstances we all worked in. There's a large alumni association of people who have left uh, the Trump administration. They left at different times for different reasons. Uh, it's a very personal decision how you uh, address the, the, the problem such as the president presented, uh, how long you try and address it, and what circumstances you finally depart under. You are a lawyer your entire career. You did go to the White House counsel. You did go to the attorney general with some of your concerns. But to your point, 
do you have any regret that you did not have as a counsel of sorts to the president on national security, on legal matters, and tell him to his face that you had severe concerns about his conduct and what he was doing? You know, one, one of the criticisms that, that I, I received, and uh, I'm receiving it uh, even today as the book is, uh, is coming out, uh, is that I tried to do too many people's jobs for them and that, and that I sh should have just done my job. So I tried to respect the fact I'm not an investigator. I had plenty of other things to do. I did refer this to the lawyers. I told uh, others on the NSC staff to talk to the lawyers. I uh, told uh, uh, other White House advisors uh, of my concern. Uh, but I tried to focus on my job. Uh, it's uh, easy from the outside to say that was wrong. And maybe it was a mistake. I, I can only tell you what I did. It was for the purpose of trying to move the country and the White House in the right direction uh, in terms of policy. So maybe it was a mistake as you reflect back? Well, it, it, uh, it, it could be. I'm, I'm certainly aware I made mistakes. I try to discuss some of them in the, in the book. Uh, it, it was hardly perfect. There were probably things I could have done better. Uh, I'm not sure on this score uh, it would have... Uh, uh, shifted the president's view uh, on all this, in part because he was hearing from so many people from the outside uh, who didn't understand how uh, the government was actually run uh, that were influencing them. Uh, and it's not always uh, clear uh, as events go on that something is uh, verging on the illegal. It may simply be uh, unacceptable, unprofessional, unpresidential. Uh, so knowing at the time uh, Ukraine's a good example, exactly what was happening in a wide variety of areas that, that I or others might not be aware of, uh, you, you don't have the full picture. Ambassador, we received many questions from Post readers, and they often echo Terry Rosenberg of Massachusetts. He asked about your lack of testimony. And given your dire view of the president, why wasn't it imperative that you testify before the House? Well, I address this question uh, at length in the book, and uh, let me try and summarize it here. I believe that the advocates of impeachment in the House uh, conducted their impeachment effort in a very misguided way. I think they made a huge strategic mistake. I describe them as committing impeachment malpractice. Uh, we have history uh, here. We have Nixon and Watergate to look back to. And you could see there that even though Nixon did not go full the, through, through the full impeachment process, he resigned, of course, uh, that what happened was that the advocates of impeachment, who were all Democrats at the beginning, uh, built a consensus, including an increasing number of Republicans, that said Nixon's conduct constituted high crimes and misdemeanors. If you look at the Irvin Committee, for example, uh, Democrat worked with Howard Baker, Republican, uh, to develop the evidence and the facts of what had actually happened at Watergate. That's not what the Democrats did here. They acted in a manner that was perceived, and I think rightly was uh, understood to be partisan. They drove House Republicans into a partisan corner. That resulted in highly partisan proceedings in the House and an almost party line impeachment vote, and, and therefore pretty much guaranteed the same sort of thing in the Senate. If the goal was not just getting a vote that impeached Trump in the House, 
but actually removing him from office, they did it just about 180 degrees the wrong way. And I saw that and thought that uh, jumping off the cliff with them was not only a mistake, but that whatever else I had to say would have gotten lost in the shuffle uh, of their mistakes. And uh, I think that's to be regretted. But this happened, uh, the, the, the democratic strategy was devised by them and implemented by them uh, before they talked to anybody else, as far as I know. Your decision changed history, and I hear your political argument there, your legal argument, your historical argument. At the same time, did you ever grapple with both a, with a moral and personal obligation as a citizen to speak up? Uh, I grappled with it extensively and asked myself what my duty as a citizen was uh, and what would be effective. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say, uh, uh, when I served at the Justice Department in the Reagan administration, he used to tell Ed Meese sometime, uh, I'm not jumping off the cliff with all flags flying. Uh, and I thought what uh, the advocates of impeachment were doing here uh, was pretty much exactly that. I think they were virtue signaling. And I think that they made a strategic mistake for the country. You know, their argument was that uh, Trump will be forever impeached and that will be a constraint on his behavior. That is exactly the opposite of what happened. He was not just impeached, he was acquitted. So their actions did not form a deterrent against future similar conduct by Trump. They enabled it. And I thought that was a mistake. And I thought, uh, in any event, the time really to discuss these kinds of things uh, couldn't be better than in the middle of a presidential campaign. And with the impeachment effort doomed to failure, in my view, and I believe, as it turned out correctly, uh, I thought the responsible thing to do is make sure that, uh, that these facts in, in the book were put on the public record for people to consider. People will read the book. They may vote for Donald Trump anyway. That's their decision. But my hope is at least they know what they're voting for. You recently said you don't have notes and you didn't use notes for writing this book. It is so detailed. I read the whole thing over the course of days. As a lawyer, you have probably often used a dictation device. Did you use a dictation device in the process of writing this book and recounting your time in the White House? No, I'm, I'm not sure I'm high tech enough to turn a dictation device on and off. Uh, I'll come back to the Nixon administration. I don't want to get into tapes or anything else. Uh, I, did, I did the best job I could. Uh, I'll stand by what I said in the book. It was the best uh, job I could do. Some people are going to disagree with it. I understand that. I'm prepared to talk about the facts and, and who has different uh, recollections. This happens as a former trial lawyer. I know people can sit in the same meeting and come away with different recollections. I'm very confident that what I wrote in the book is the best I could do to, to put it down accurately. Let's turn to some of the topics inside the book. You raise red flags, not just about what you say is the president's incompetence, but raise issues of possible corruption in the book. You said on page 458, the president has a penchant for handing out personal favors for dictators he likes. Do you believe, Ambassador, that President Trump or family members such as Jared Kushner have financial conflicts as they craft foreign policy for the United States? You know, I don't I don't know the answer to that question, but I would say as I wrote the book and recounted these uh, various incidents, it wasn't 
personal financial gain uh, for Donald Trump that was most on my mind. It was the uh, misuse of legitimate government power to advance his own political interests. Uh, and that's something that uh, uh, he is, uh, he's, he, he never forgets what his political interest is. You know, people say he has a short attention span, he doesn't learn, he doesn't read, he doesn't uh, consider facts necessarily. Uh, and I lay out a lot of examples in, of that in the book. But when it comes to his own reelection, uh, all of those faults fade away. It's, it's too bad that Moore wasn't devoted to the national security rather than his own reelection. But, but that's what I was primarily concerned about. If there are examples of uh, financial misdeeds, uh, I, I, didn't, I can't say that I saw any. Uh, and so I, I really wouldn't want to speculate about it. But the misuse of government power for any non-governmental purpose, uh, in my view, is illegitimate. Now, look, every president takes politics into account. It would be naive and foolish to think otherwise. But I do think there's a line one should not cross where governmental power is used essentially exclusively for personal benefit. Did the president ever talk to you about investigations at the Southern District of New York? Well, he, he spoke, yeah, yes, he did. And, but he, most importantly, he spoke to uh, President Erdogan of Turkey uh, about the, uh, the Hawk Bank investigation and, and prosecution in New York. And I recount in the book uh, the concerns that I had, that Mike Pompeo had, that Steve Mnuchin had uh, about the president and Erdogan talking about this uh, this investigation and, and litigation and, and what the president said uh, about what he would do to influence it. The attorney general was part of this firing of the SDNY U.S. attorney. You've went to the attorney general to voice your concerns about Hawk Bank, about other issues like ZTE and Huawei. Do you believe the attorney general is compromised in any way? Well, I, I don't know the circumstances involved in, in the firing of the uh, acting U.S. attorney uh, in the Southern District of New York. I, I wouldn't want to speculate about it. I don't know if Hawk Bank is involved uh, at all. Uh, so uh, from that perspective, because I've been out of the government now since uh, I resigned in September, uh, I don't have anything to add other than what I've read in, in the newspapers. If the House Democrats pursue an investigation of the attorney general, would you be willing to testify? You know, I'd, I'd rather not get into a hypothetical about that. I've watched the Democrats. Well, they're pursuing a subpoena. They're pursuing a subpoena right now. Well, let, let's see what they do. The, the way they mishandled the impeachment inquiry gives me pause, I have to say, uh, especially uh, in, in the light of the circumstances of things that uh, President Trump has done to prevent the book itself uh, from, being, uh, from being published. But uh, I'll certainly consider it if and when it comes up and uh, consult with my lawyers and, and try and do the right thing. So you're open to it and you would try to do the right thing if they pursue an investigation of Barr? Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see what they do. As I say, right now, this is, this is hypothetical. We're, we're in a campaign season. I think we all know what that means. Do you view, we've talked a little bit about Rudy Giuliani here. Do you view the Senate Republicans' investigation of Vice President Biden Hunter Biden in Burisma as a legitimate investigation? You know, uh, I don't know uh, anything about Biden uh, or his son or uh, what their activities were, again, other than what I've seen in the newspapers. Now, 
If there are facts that warrant it, then then uh, then I don't have any objection to it. Uh, but I don't see anything here other than uh, a very foolish act by Hunter Biden to take the money from Burisma. I mean, the uh, the the appearance uh, is is not good. But whether there's substance to it or not, I, I don't see that from the media accounts that I've read. I think it was foolish, but I don't see anything beyond that at this point. Ambassador, you write in your book about Jamal Khashoggi, our Washington Post colleague who was killed by Saudi agents. Can you tell us more about the president's views on the murder of Khashoggi? Uh, you know, I recount in the book uh, conversations that he had with Saudi leaders. He said he wanted an investigation to get to the bottom of it. Uh, but he also said clearly and made a public statement uh, to exactly the same effect that we were going to stand by the Saudis because of the importance uh, of the relationship to the United States in a, in a very turbulent uh, and troubled region. Uh, Vladimir Putin said to me later, you know, look, the United States doesn't want to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. That's fine. We'll sell arms to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of a hard realpolitik view of the world. Uh, but that's the view that he took because of the importance of the bilateral U.S.-Saudi relationship. And I think that was the that was the right course. Let's stay on the Putin front for a moment. You write at length in the book about President Putin and President Trump. Do you believe that the Russians and Putin have manipulated the president's worldview? I don't uh, I don't think the president has a worldview. Uh, that that to me is the central problem. He he doesn't approach uh, national security with a philosophy in mind. He doesn't have a grand strategy. He doesn't have policies. So I, there's not much there for the Russians or anyone else to manipulate. Uh, but my fear is that uh, whether it's Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or any number of other uh, authoritarian foreign leaders. Uh, that they, they do see the president as easy to maneuver around to achieve their objectives. I, I think that is a very real concern. You state also that the president sought the help from the Chinese president for his reelection campaign. Do you have any evidence that China is now helping the president's campaign? Uh, I, I don't think that they are accomplishing the purchases of agricultural products that uh, the president was really talking about. Uh, some of his trade advisors say the deal's going just fine and the Chinese are complying. I, I think the evidence for that is slight, to say the least. Uh, and I think uh, this points to one of the questions that uh, voters generally, but particularly conservative Republicans like myself, should be asking whether if Trump is reelected in November, he'll pursue the kinds of rhetoric that his administration is using now, taking a tough line on China, whether that will continue or, or whether it will disappear so that the president can get back to the trade negotiations. To that point, do you believe if the president is reelected, he will work closer with Maduro, he will work closer with Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, and all the others? Well, I think the Part of the trouble in describing what happens in Trump administration foreign policy is that what seems to be decided on day one is sometimes reversed on day two. And the Venezuela example is a good, uh, a good case in point. I, I describe in the book uh, how uh, the Venezuelan opposition in January of 2019 decided that 
they had to take a very active anti-Maduro position. They thought it might be their last chance to rescue freedom in Venezuela. Uh, the uh, supporters of Venezuela in this country uniformly agreed they had to take that chance. Uh, we have had broad bipartisan support for supporting the opposition in Venezuela in a time when there isn't much in Washington that's bipartisan, with strong support for that. And the president went along with it until he decided that he was nervous that Maduro was really a, a stronger leader. Uh, he, he earlier this year had Juan Guaido, the leader of the opposition, the interim president to the State of the Union message. And then not just a few days ago, he said he'd meet with Maduro, uh, and he was uncertain about Guaido's leadership. That caused a firestorm in the Venezuelan-American and Cuban-American communities, and the president reversed himself again. A ask me after the election what his position will be then. Ambassador Bolton, we only have a few minutes left here, so just a few more short answers, short questions. Your office in D.C., the White House, right near all these protests about racial injustice, you talk in the book about the president using vulgar terms and sexist terms. Did you ever hear anything inside of this White House that was racist? You know, uh, I, I don't think in terms that are that are can fairly be described as racist. No, no, I don't. Mean? I know that what there that were mean? other other statements that were attributed to him uh, before I before I joined the White House. But but no, I don't uh, I, I don't recall any. If I had, I would have put them in the book. And you uh, write about the president and his belief in democracy. Uh, do you believe that the president will follow the peaceful transfer of power and leave the White House peacefully if he is defeated this, this year? Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, and I think it's important for Republicans especially to make that clear. This is, uh, this is something that uh, if we're not careful, I think carrying the albatross of this administration around our necks any longer than necessary is going to cause great harm to the country for sure, but to conservatives and Republicans as well. And that, that outcome you're describing would be absolutely the worst. Well, let, let's pause there. You said hope so about the peaceful transfer of power. So you're not certain. I think in the Trump administration, you can't be certain of anything. What does that mean for the fate of this country? Well, I, I, uh, I think the prospects for the presidential election this November are very unhappy, certainly for me as a lifelong conservative uh, who started handing out leaflets for Barry Goldwater as a kid of 15. Uh, I wish we weren't faced with this choice. I wish there were a real conservative Republican uh, on the ballot. Uh, there's not. It's not going to be a happy time from my perspective. Uh, I hope to spend uh, uh, at least a little time working hard to make sure the Republican majority in the Senate uh, is preserved. I think whether Trump wins or loses, that's absolutely critical. But at the presidential level, it's a, the prospects are not happy. So you're going to be busy uh, working on your political action committee this year. Will you campaign against President Trump? You know, I, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Honestly, I haven't thought all that through. I think Frankly, the bulk of my effort, maybe all of my effort, will be uh, at the congressional level. Uh, I think under the surface in the Republican Party, there's a great desire to get beyond the Trump era. Uh, and I think we'll see that particularly if, uh, if he's defeated in November. Uh, I think it's just critical that the party as an institution have a 
uh, discussion about how we proceed going forward, because otherwise I fear that the ramifications of uh, Trump's four years in office will be very, very damaging. And when it comes to national security, I think it's critical to have a strong Republican Party to make the case for a strong American foreign policy. Final question, Ambassador Bolton. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Based on your point just now, are you considering a 2024 presidential run? Absolutely not. I can I can say that unequivocally. You know, pe people are accusing me of enough things, trying to get money out of the book and whatnot. Look, if if money were my objective, I never would have gone into the government. Let's be let's be clear about that. Uh, this is this is not for personal gain. I wrote this book for the country and for philosophy. Uh, and to 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 avoid any uh, misunderstanding on the point, I'm glad you asked that question. As I say, as as they say, so I can unequivocally Sherman-esque fashion rule out uh, a presidential campaign in 2024. Well, I do remember starting to cover you back in 2011 when you're thinking about it in 2012 and 2015 when you're thinking about it in 2016. So I had to ask it, Ambassador Bolton. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.